if you have the cash, you can take it out, right? Whether you should take it out, you know, whether that's foolish or not, that's a separate issue. That's a management issue. Hello and welcome to the Gross Profit Podcast. My name is James Kennedy. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Procurement Express. We're the software that helps you manage your SMB spend with magical features. This week, um, I've got Anthony Nixos from sasgurus.io. Um, but what you really care about is should you listen to the rest of this episode? I think you should if you run a SaaS company like I do and have always had a little bit of a tenuous relationship to my accounting at the end of the year to figure out what it actually says about my business. You should also listen if you are maybe a traditional accountant or someone who has many different types of clients but also has SaaS clients uh, so you can get a better understanding of how to deliver value to those clients in a way which is most useful to them. Uh, I've already had a, an extended chat with uh, Anthony on this topic. It blew my mind, to be honest. It was some really useful stuff. Um, if you're as excited about SaaS businesses as I am, it's going to be very valuable. So Anthony, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and giving us your time. Maybe you could just give us a bit of your background and how have you come to these insights in the first place? Well, I was born on a cold, wintry afternoon in February. No, I'm just kidding. I actually was um, born in February, but um, I came to SaaS uh, probably in 2007 was the first time uh, I had a SaaS client. I've been doing fractional work probably for about 15 or 20 years um, in terms of you know contracting to do finance and accounting. And I like to distinguish that finance and accounting are very different. Finance is prospective, forward-looking, strategic. Accounting is retrospective, historical, and is, you know, focused on what has happened. So, you know, I look at both sides of that. I'm a CPA as well as a finance expert. Primarily, we do a lot of finance work. And, of course, we have to have the accounting go along with it. So been doing that for 15 or 20 years across a number of industries. Within the last 10 years, have focused specifically on SaaS. During that time, I've worked for two unicorn exits and countless other uh, SaaS companies that we've helped support either through fundraising and or other activities to help them grow and scale. Great. Well, we're going to get into the different types of SaaS that are out there a little later on. But maybe just let me start with a very basic question. If you're used to accounting for traditional businesses, what should you do differently for your client uh, if they're a SaaS business? I think what you should do differently for SaaS clients is really understand that there are two sets of, call them policies, if you will, although that's kind of a, an overused term, but maybe modes of thought when it comes to how you're dealing with them. One is on the finance side of things. On the finance side of things, there's a, a lot of metrics or KPIs, key performance indicators that you should be tracking for your clients and also presenting to the executive team. So things like annualized recurring revenue, things like churn, contraction, cost to acquire customers. There are a number of different metrics out there that are specific to SaaS that all of the industry experts use, all of the benchmarking services use these things. There's a commonality in how they are arrived at. Even though this is not an accounting standard, there are certainly industry standards. And it's a language that is specific to software as a subscription or software as a service, depending on how you define it, companies. So that's on the finance side of things. Then there's the accounting side of things. And this is where this 
uh, pronouncement called ASC 606 comes into play. So if you're a CPA, you're going to be very interested in what I have to say. And if you're not a CPA, you're going to go find a cup of coffee or something else to go you know, take care of right now. But the 606 standards are really critical in what is called deferred revenue recognition. So let's say you have a subscription and you sold it to somebody and they pay you in advance for a year. Say it's $120,000 or $12,000, just something like that. Well, you're not going to recognize all that revenue the month you invoice it. You're going to recognize that revenue over the term of the contract. And that's very important um, to do that correctly. So 606 has a lot of you know definitions about how you defer, what you defer. So you need to be an expert in 606, and you also need to be an expert on the finance metrics. And that's really where, you know, we differentiate ourselves because we're specific to the SaaS industry. It was very disappointing to me when uh, I saw the money in the account there and uh, in the bank account, and I talked to my accountant, and he's like, no, that's, that's not your money. No, uh, that's you've still to earn that money, which didn't sound good to me. But there's a tension there between what's practicable and like what is technically correct because technically correct i guess in another type of business where i had a hotel and i pre-sold the rooms for a year i would have to keep you know significant overheads with me for the rest of the year Mm -hmm. where is technically in a SaaS business like if something terrible happened tomorrow uh, as long as i could afford the price of the server i could get away with it so this accrual makes sense does it make more sense for like uh businesses with like more overheads um or is it is something real that a SaaS founder should really worry about can i go ahead and look at the cash in the bank and say you know what if i want to invest that i'm probably okay to do it yeah i i think i'm leaning more oh well not think i am leaning more towards the latter cash is what you can spend you cannot spend net income And net income is an accounting term. Net income is a gap, generally accepted accounting practices term. And that's what you need to have comparable financial statements. If you're audited, you're going to need that for your audits or your reviews. But companies run on cash. They don't run on net income. And being able to forecast where your cash balances are going to be month to month when you're going to have availability, you know, to invest in something else. Um, if you're a venture backed startup, usually you're very concerned about your cash runway, which is how long until my cash runs out before I have to go raise more money, um, which then involves dilution because you have to, you know, sell part of your stock off or convertible note or whatever it happens to be. So <clears throat> we focus very much on the cash forecasting and cash management piece, and we take care of the P&L, um, the accounting side of things, because that's necessary. We need that information and outsiders need that information. But I don't really spend a lot of time with our CEOs going over the deferred revenue balance on the balance sheet. It's there because the accountants need it to be there. What's important is, do you have enough cash in the bank in order to pay your payroll, invest in that new AWS server that you need, um, go out and hire a salesperson who can actually, you know, really accelerate your top line, spend money on your advertising and your marketing campaign so that your go-to-market is healthy. Those are the conversations that we have with our clients. It's not about oh yeah well you have, your gap net income was you know x we give that we have that it's there when it's needed 
Okay, so when I told my business partner, Rich, I was going to be talking to you, he was like, because uh, in, in, in effect, what we do is I decode all the bank statements every month still, and uh, I create my own sort of cash situation of where we are. And I break it down by our, our departments, you know, marketing, sales, advertising, engineering. Mm -hmm. And we kind of look at that and then we send it off to accounts and then some magic happens and we get back what sort of profit we, we really have, you know, so... <clears throat> And I was saying to Rich, you know, oh, this is great. You know, I think maybe we should just be on cash accounting, but that's not like cool if you're an accountant, as far as I know, like it's it's much cooler to be doing this accrual accounting. And we had a little debate over, well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in terms of if we want to take dividends from the business, it's going to be the accrual accounting that tells me what we can take out. So Rich's point was, well, what really matters is what sort of dividend is going to be there, not where the cash is, so to speak, although I don't fully understand that yet. Um, so what's the answer? Which of these should you be using? So in your case, because you have regulatory requirements that say you can only take cash out of the business if you have basically a profit, um, you have different requirements. In the United States, there's no such requirement generally for private companies. If you have the cash, you can take it out, right? Whether you should take it out, you know, whether that's foolish or not, that's a separate issue. That's a management issue. The answer is really kind of twofold. One, we're not outside accountants. We are inside the company with our clients. Um, we are part and parcel of their operations. So we're on, they're on our Slack. Okay. We're talking to each other on a constant basis. You know, we're very responsive because this is a living, you know, breathing organization and you can't throw something over the wall to your accountants and then wait two weeks for it to come back to you. That's, that's not how you can effectively run a business. You need Intel immediately. So our philosophy has always been, we are in, we are part of your team. Um, in fact, in many cases, I have an email, you know, I'm the CFO of the company to the outside world. They don't need to know that I do this for multiple clients. You know, it's like I am the CFO of your company and that's how I treat it. So the accounting piece is part and parcel of what we do. And we embed that accounting within the forecasting tool. And that's where the power really resides. So you can see your accounting P&L. And by the way, P&L for SAS is very specific in how it should be laid out. There's not, there is a fairly specific defined way that you should set up your chart of accounts and your financial reporting if you're a SAS company. And we can get into that if you like, but let's just assume that for the sake of argument. That SAS accounting structure should absolutely 100% mimic your forecasting. In other words, if I'm forecasting gross profit this way, then my accounting better be defining it the exact same way. And same thing for my sales and marketing. So when we are working with our clients on a monthly basis, we're sitting there and we're reviewing, okay, here's what your projection or your budget said you were going to do. Here's what actually happened. Not only on a P&L book basis, if you will, but more important, we do it on a cash basis. So we're actually doing both at the same time. It's not an either or to us. It's a, we have the P&L gap statements because that's what our budgets are based on. That's what our 409A valuations can be based on. That, you know, number of reasons why you have to have that. But more important, that's like your vertebral column of your body. That's your spine. You need to have that really solid and rock solid because everything else hangs off of it. All of your financial forecasting, all of your analysis, everything hangs off of that.
So they're really just to me, they're just articulated statements. They're 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 two sides of the same coin. Pick your favorite metaphor, but we don't really separate them because of what you're running into, which is there's this disconnect between, well, this is what the accountants tell us versus this is what we need to run the business. We eliminate that by making sure that this is all one, you know, if you will, one package. Okay. So in my case, I should, we use zero. So I should be able to go into zero and I see there's an accrual and a cash basis there. You can look at all the reports on, I should be able to toggle between the two of them and it makes sense. And then I know, okay, I've got a tool here I can rely on. Yeah. But we, what we generally do is we use the, whether it's zero or QuickBooks or NetSuite or whatever it happens to be, the, the chart of accounts, the general ledger system. That is the, the, the system of accounts. Okay. And that's where all the historical transactions are recorded. Um, and you're going to be doing both accruals and, and non accruals along with it. But that information we then export into the financial model. And that's really the workhorse of our company and what we do with our clients. It's, it is a spreadsheet and it's mostly a spreadsheet because I haven't found a forecasting tool out there that I like. Um, and there are many of them out there. And the reason why I don't like them is because they all forecast cash as a, we call it a plug after they forecast the balance sheet. And that's, that indirect method is just backwards from how we run our companies. So that's why I really don't like any of the forecasting tools out there because when we forecast cash, we're saying, here's how much you're gonna spend on payroll and benefits. Here's how much you expect to spend on cost of revenue operating expenses. Here's how much you expect to spend on sales and marketing operating expenses. And so it's very clear to our clients, hey, you know, we have this conversation, literally had this conversation yesterday. Our burn was, you know, 150,000 higher than what we thought it was going to be. Why? I'm able to answer that question in 30 minutes. I don't have to go in and, and dig through a chart of accounts. It's like I can go right in and say, you overspent on sales and marketing because you had this huge conference bill that came in for $100,000 next year that you're going to go to next year that you paid for now. That wasn't in the forecast. So this is getting us into, and a lot of folks this time of year will have done their budgeting or looking ahead. Sometimes people just do it on a can calendar basis. Other folks will have it on a rolling basis, I guess. Because I've I've looked at some of the forecasting tools out there. What I heard there was it it needs to forecast based on cash, but most of them don't. Is that correct? Well, they forecast cash, but they do it in what's called the indirect method, which is they forecast your accounts receivable, they forecast your accounts payable, they forecast your you know notes and liabilities, and so they forecast everything else on the balance sheet, and what's left over is cash. It's called the plug. Right. And that methodology really makes it difficult to go back and retrospectively understand quickly why your cash missed or didn't. I mean, maybe you went over on cash as well. That does happen. Right. But using a direct method, which is here's my budget right here, or here's my projection. Here's, you know, the people that I anticipate I'm going to have in house here, what their salaries are, their benefits, their you know payroll taxes. Blah, blah, blah. Here's my digital marketing spend. Here's my conference spend, you know, everything, every single line item laid out. Those then get fed into a cash model that says, okay, here's based on your spend and your and your customer receipts. And this is the thing we haven't talked about, which is that all important sales forecast. 
you cannot do cash forecasting unless you have a really solid understanding of when you're going to be invoicing your customers, how quickly they pay. And this is an invoicing question. For example, if you're monthly and you're invoicing monthly versus annual and you're invoicing annually, those are two very different cash flows, right? Sure. Because annual is very lumpy, right? You get it all up front, whereas monthly happens throughout. And we've had a discussion recently with one of our clients is, should we emphasize more on the annual contracts versus the monthly contracts? What happens if we do that? Well, we can flip the cash model and just show them back and forth. Okay, if you emphasize this, you're going to run out of cash here. So these are the things that I think really are missing in a lot of what I see the services are out there, which is this focus on cash. And I learned that a long time ago because in the SaaS startup world, if you run out of cash, you're dead. You're touching there on the types of SaaS, which we'll get to in a second. But just before we leave the P&L, um, I'd like to mention, like, so there's a standard for SaaS reporting on, a, on an income statement or P&L basis. And just, just to briefly touch on, like, what should we re be reporting in our cost of goods sold? And, and what's the typical margin you know you should have with, to be a healthy SaaS company? Have you any thoughts on that? Oh, totally. Um, this is this is a matter of fact, this is a central discussion with all of our clients the first time we engage with them is which is we need to get to your gross margin number. That's one of the most crit critical numbers we need to arrive at. What goes into it? We differentiate into th what we call three departments, if you will, or three buckets for cost. We call it cost of revenue or cost of goods sold, either or. Number one is your production costs. These are the costs that you incur in order to have the software available to your customer. So it's your hosting costs go in there. If you have a DevOps team, they're going to go in there. Um, if you have any security software that's securing like Auth0 or other, you know, kind of programs that are securing the hosting environment, those are all part of your production costs. So this is what it takes to produce the software that your customers get to use. SOC 2. SOC 2. Oh, we'll talk about that in a second <laughs> because that's not part of cost of revenue. Um, that's an overhead cost. Okay. So the other department is if you have an implementation team. So, for example, if it takes a certain amount of uh, people time in order to get the software up and running for a client, you see this a lot in ERP systems, like they have these huge implementation teams, right? Um, so there are any costs associated with we call standing up the software which is getting it available to the clients so that they can use it. That's another bucket. You can call that delivery or implementation, depending on your, um, your bend. And then there's a third bucket, which is after the software is up and running, if a client reaches out to you for help, who do they call, right? Or who do they chat? That's your support team. And that's another bucket that's cost of revenue. So another way to think of it is if your customers all vanished, who on your team is sitting there twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do? If they're sitting with nothing to do because the customers are gone, they're very likely cost of revenue and should be considered part of your gross margin. So three buckets, production, which is your hosting and everything goes around it. Delivery or implementation, which is your stand-up team, the team that gets them up and running. And then your support and what we call support and retention because the support team in an ideal world should also be the ones that are constantly nurturing and, and talking and interacting with the clients so that when the renewal period comes up, they renew, they don't churn off. Sure. Then to your other question, what's a good margin? You know, a best in class gross margin is 
ideally in a SaaS world, you want to be in that very high 70s up into the 80s percentage on your gross margin. Um, and then, you know, if you're really truly best in class, 85, 87, 88, you know, that's really getting up there in terms of super performance. And what drives that performance is software that's bulletproof. So it has no defects in it. When you publish it and it goes out there, you're publishing good quality code. Software that kind of implements itself, right? So if you have a self-serve model where there requires very little human interaction in order to get the software up and running, then your implementation team is going to be very narrow or, or even non-existent. And so your support team is narrow and non-existent if your code is bulletproof. And if the code stands up itself and basically the customer can get it running on their own, your implementation is very low. And then if you have a very small data footprint in terms of your hosting, so there's not a lot of data calls back and forth between your host um, and your client, then your hosting costs can be low. So I worked for a company that did this successfully. That's why I'm using this specific example. And they had an 88% gross margin. And they also exited for two and a half billion dollars. So the proof is in the pudding there. This was a company that was very successful, had excellent software, had a very small implementation team and had a very small support team because the software basically didn't, I don't want to say it implemented itself, but it was pretty darn close. Yeah, well, the, there's no logical relationship between the complexity of the software and it, the, the, the value it delivers. It's true. Although we like to think of it like that as engineers, the more you engineer it, the better be better, but the more it be better, but like not necessarily so. So let's talk a little bit about the different types. So if you have that 88% margin and you're doing a hundred million, that's uh, amazing. If you're doing a million, that's also good, I guess, but it's a different ball game and there's different types of SaaS companies, although we all to a certain extent get trucked into the tech crunch bucket, mm -hmm. but there's bootstrapped and there's VC, traditional SaaS companies. They're the two buckets are in my mind. Are there any other buckets of SaaS companies that are out there and how would you contrast those two in terms of how you want to operate them? You know, the first two um, is a very good classification. We call the venture backed, our venture backed clients versus our bootstrap clients. The venture backed clients, you know, the main focus is on that cash runway and the sales growth, of course. But the cash runway is, is very much front and center. It's like, okay, based on our current burn, we're going to need to go out and do a raise, you know, Q4 of next year or whatever it happens to be. And then keeping a very close eye on that. So cash management of the funds that have come in and the expectations around those, because every time you get an investment round, of course, the investors are expecting you to perform and to, you know, produce a result that they're looking for so that they can get their their multiples on their their exit. On the bootstrap side of things, it's actually it's very different because, of course, they're already profitable. They're already cash flow positive. So what we spend a lot of time there working on is really twofold. One is, believe it or not, tax planning, because if you have a lot of profit, you need to have a strategy on what you're going to do with that profit in order to, you know, as best as you can legally avoid paying taxes, right? Especially if it's a, a partnership that has, you know, two founders in a, in a garage have, you know, come up with an idea and, you know, they're making oodles of money. And at the end of the year, they're paying huge tax bills to the IRS. Well, how do we help them so that, you know, they don't, right? So we bring the tax experts. So that forecast, for example, we're doing this right now, forecasting their profitability for next year, 
is you know helping them understand what tax strategies they can use to minimize. So that's one thing. The other thing that the bootstraps really focus on is: Do I have enough cash to invest in you know another salesperson or expand my sales team? Or I have got a, a lot of code debt that I need to reprogram my code. You know, can I afford you know more developers in order to you know make my code more efficient? So a lot of analysis in terms of what if we spend here versus here. And we need obviously the cash forecast to tell us whether those, you know, liquid funds are going to be available to do that. Those conversations happen also on the VC side, but there's absolutely no conversations about tax, of course, because they're running net operating losses. It's almost always focused on, okay, do we, do we beef up the dev team because we need to get more features and functions out there or the code is good enough, we need to really beef up the sales and marketing team. Oh, and by the way, we do need some people in the back office to help us keep this all together. You know, how much do we spend on those? That's interesting because, um, I mean, when I, when I think of, you know, some of our competitors who are, are venture backed, some of them have raised a lot of money very recently. And I think um, they're, they're great companies. But their economics are are different. Like we, you know, in terms of advertising, they can, you know, acquire maybe a customer for maybe three to five times, you know, the annual contract value, and still that's a net margin when it comes to the enterprise value they've added to their their company. So that's that's fine. If we were to spend three to five years before we got a payback on a customer, it would just be it would be insane. It wouldn't be it wouldn't wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth it, you know, mm-hmm. and. I think from a customer perspective, what you have to think about is their strengths and weaknesses to both. Like the venture backs often have, you know, deep pockets, which means they can deliver great software also, and they can deliver great support, let's hope. But a hidden danger there is that are you really getting a more reliable company? Because the venture backs, let's face it, if they don't, if they drive hard for growth, which can be a downside when it comes to sustainability. The VCs would rather they go go for a 10x or die almost. So if you're buying with a bootstrap company, if I was to promote doing that for a moment, is that you're getting a more stable company, one that you can maybe rely on for the long, long term versus a Silicon Valley company. Now, if I had a VC, I'd love to have a VC founder around here to put the other side of that. But, you know, that's my view on what customers should be thinking about. It looks good to see them in TechCrunch, but does it really mean they're more reliable? If your business is relying on them, is that something you really want to buy into? And the other thing that's part and parcel of that is, um, and you know, don't get me wrong, VC-backed industry is, is hugely important because this is this gives companies that wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to get a product out there. You know, bootstrapping is rare because it's really hard to do. Um, VC is also really hard to do, but in a different way. But my point here where I'm going with this is on the, is not just the reliability, it's the pricing. Because you're a VC-backed company, the price of your product by nature is less than what you need it to be in order to be profitable, right? Because you're using VC money to subsidize your price. Um, And this is something that happens when companies go IPO which that have been VC backed up until that point is they may have been selling the product at this price because the venture money that they've been taking in has allowed them to keep it at that price because their operations are being funded by VC money. Whereas a bootstrap, they're pricing their product where it needs to be in order for them to make a profit. So there's no price change or any or or pressure on prices to change on a bootstrap so much as there is in a VC. 
And then once they go public and now all of a sudden they have to be profitable and they have to report, you know, out on a quarterly basis and they have to, you know, go to the the analysts and say, here's, you know, signaling the market, here's what's going to happen with our, our, our product and our prices. Then what you start to see is you start to see prices start to ratchet up mm. because they have to make it right without all the VC money. Now, yes, they're getting money from the market because they're able to sell stock and they, you know, the access to the capital markets. But my point is that VC-backed companies, by their nature, their prices are subsidized by the VCs who are giving them money, whereas bootstraps aren't. So there's also that interplay of the pricing and not just the stability of, okay, the VC winds up shop, you know, they've got a bunch of customers out there who's going to, you know, serve them. There is that very key question. Um, but it's there because they, they're paying a low price for something that, they probably, you know, economically should be paying more for because the economics dictate that, hey, it needs to be up here in order for the company to be profitable. Uh, I've got a sense of, you know, what is different from someone maybe coming from outsourced accounting function to a finance function, insourcing a, or outsourcing a finance function. What else can you take on or take away from the leadership team or provide to them that they wouldn't have had before? Illumination. Um, and what I mean by that is really illuminating for the executive team exactly how they're spending their money and why, right? So if you have, if you're embedded within the organization, there should be some sort of strategic objectives that have been clarified for the organization for the next year, whether it's, you know, thought leadership in the industry, whether it's, you know, growth of, you know, the, the sales, whatever it happens to be. And those strategic objectives should be 100% reflected in your financial projection in your budget. Because you can't achieve those strategic objectives without the key results needed to get there. And those key results require people and they require resources. And so we spend a lot of time illuminating that line between here's where you want to go with the company. Here's what you're going to need to get to it. And here's whether you're actually getting there, okay, on a financial basis. And in a lot of cases, we'll come in and we'll find what I call the tech pile. Okay, everybody talks about their tech stack, right? But I like to talk about the tech pile. The tech pile is what happens when you're a startup and say, oh, well, you know what? We need an accounting system. Okay, let's go grab QuickBooks. Uh, we need a payroll system. Oh, let's go grab Gusto. Oh, we need a CRM. Let's get HubSpot. Um, we need a CSM. Let's go get Vitaly. You know, whatever it happens to be. And all these people are out there going out and grabbing tech in order to help them with their job. And nobody's sitting there saying, how does this fit into a unified whole? How do these systems talk to each other? Are we using common terms? Are we using the same customer list, right? I came into a company and said, what's the customer list? Well, finance has one, support has one, sales has one, and they're all different. Or you have redundancy, like you have two CRMs. Why on earth do you need two CRMs? You really only need one. Well, HubSpot does this and Salesforce does this and, you know, Nutshell does this. And, you know, it's like, hold on a second. So a lot of cases we come in and we clean up that tech pile and find money because they're spending money where they don't need to. They're duplicating. They're redundant. Um, or, you know, they're way over market on their um, salaries, right? They've overpaid their team or they're way under market. You know, it could be either way or their options that they've granted are out of line. Now, that doesn't necessarily impact the P&L, but it certainly can in fact affect retention. 
and then retention can affect the PL if you lose people or you don't, you know, you can't keep them. So it's really casting a light on the inner workings of the organization using the financial system as the, the light, if you will, uh, to say, hey, here's what's really going on in your organization and here's how it relates to the operations of you achieving your strategic objectives. That's, I think, where we spend probably our greatest value is in really understanding, you know, the inner workings and how it impacts, you know, whether the company is achieving its objectives on a financial basis. Well, thanks very much, uh, Anthony. It's been fascinating. I hope uh, a couple of people have found it as interesting as I have, because um, it's it's actually this is where the how the sausage gets made. I've never heard anyone really have a conversation like this online about the detail of this stuff, and it's pretty it's pretty fascinating and very useful. So maybe you could just tell people, you know, where they can reach out to you if they want to chat further or find out more about what you do. It's very easy. My name is unusual. N-I-T-S-O-S. And like Nancy, I-T like Tom, S-O-S like the distress signal. You're not going to find a whole lot of Nitsoses in the world. As far as I know, there are only two Anthony Nitsos, myself and some other guy that lives in Australia. I'm the one in the United States. I'm in Ann Arbor. So it's easy to find me by name on a Google search. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there under my name. Um, we have a website, sasgurus.io. Um, you can contact me there through the contact us. I'll even give you my phone number. It's 734-474-4273. Please call me. I will not answer the phone if I think you're a spam caller. Leave a message on my voicemail. I'll call you back. Um, I'm in the Eastern time zone of the United States. Yes, Michigan is in the Eastern time zone of the United States. People, for some reason, think we're in Central time. No, we're in Eastern time. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm accessible. I don't want to say 24 by 7 because I do have a life, but I usually get back to people within minutes or hours if they reach out to me. Because, again, I come from the world of this is live and happening right now, and you don't need to wait around for the answers of the numbers that you need. Well, I can vouch that we're recording this fairly early in the morning your time and you've already got a day's work done from what i understand so i can vouch for your availability and um, thanks very much for joining us thank you for the opportunity i really appreciate it so thank you very much for listening for this episode if you know someone or you yourself are uh, someone who has deep insight into how you can run an SMB business, might be SaaS, might be something else. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're always looking for interesting guests like Anthony to come along and talk biz. So please get in touch. My email is james.kennedy at procurementexpress.com. Uh, if you know someone we should be talking to. And until the next time, we'll see you then.